even though I had a, a very strong sense of pride in my culture at home, mm. at school, I did not want to be known as a Mexican kid mm. because I heard the way teachers talked about it. I saw the way uh, counselors and security officers interacted with my uh, Mexican peers. And I was also surrounded by this larger rhetoric uh, across our city, region, the country about who we are as Mexicans in this country. And I did not want to deal with that. What's up, everybody? I go by the name of Domo. And I go by the name of Yoshko. And each week, we sit down with cultural ambassadors to talk about how they defied societal norms to live their lives with, with no, no blueprint. blueprint. So my name is Luis Ortega. I'm the founder and director at Storytellers for Change, and I will consider myself a community advocate, particularly for the immigrant and refugee communities uh, across the larger Puget Sound area, Washington State, and particularly for young undocumented people. Nice. That's very concise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've done this before. I have. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you define culture? culture well you know I, I think I think about everything and this is a storyteller in me in terms of stories so as soon as I hear the word culture that it brings me back to the stories that surrounded me as I was growing up so I think about my grandmother's stories which are two very different ones on one end one of my grandmothers she grew up in a slightly bit of a more privileged setting uh, with a father who had, you know, some more money, and even though eventually they lost it, uh, she grew up with that with that affluence, and she was a, a very light-skinned Mexican also. So there was also some privilege with that. So not only socioeconomic but racial uh, privilege, and um, and I think a lot about how that shaped uh, the culture of my household because I grew up with that grandmother. So I grew up in a single-parent household, but. Uh, my grandma was also there. So it doesn't always feel fair to say that I grew up in a single-parent household because I feel like I had two moms. Uh, but I think that that shaped a lot of the culture at home uh, and the type of music that we listened to. So my grandma, she used to do opera in Mexico. So oh, wow. uh, I grew up with a lot of opera music. I grew up with a lot of classical music. Um, and that also, of course, influenced my mom and how I grew up. But then I also think about the vacations I will take with my other grandmother from time to time and very different background. She grew up in a very rural, uh, impoverished part of Mexico in Guerrero. And she was, uh, even though she was able to get an education, eventually became a teacher and a principal, everything was so different uh, around her. Uh, and I talk about my grandmas because I feel like the stories that they told me growing up, uh, they shaped my perception of my culture where I had this part of me that came from a city and affluence and opera and jazz and classical music. And I had these stories that shaped my culture that came from a more, uh, my more indigenous roots and my mestizo roots and uh, the impoverished parts of Mexico and the struggle of poor people to get an education. Um, so I don't know, I think about stories and I think about my grandmas, I guess is what I'm arriving at yeah. with your question. That's awesome. And you just answered like my next three questions. So thank you. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> no, that was, that was super awesome. I think both of my grandmothers, and I'll take that back, 
it's not that I think. I know <laughs> that both of my grandmothers had very strong characters. Yeah. So I'll give you like two quick examples, you know, since I'm the storyteller, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like my grandmother from my mom's side of the family, she was one out of seven. And she was one of the younger ones. And when she was born, she was named Catalina. Uh, but by age six, as she will tell us, she already knew that that was not her name. Like one day she just woke up to her parents and said, my name is not Catalina. It's like, what are you talking about, Catalina? That's your name. <laughs> She's like, I'm pretty sure it's not. My name is Catona. And she pretty much went about the rest of uh, her childhood telling people that her name was Catona. And as soon as she could change her name, she changed it. So that just gives you an idea of who my grandma was and, yeah. and how she felt very strongly about uh, shaping her, right. <laughs> her own identity. Absolutely. And she always did that. Uh, like growing up, she always instilled in me and my two younger sisters this sense of, uh, you know, you are who you want to be and right. you are the stories that you tell about yourself. So, uh, so tell that story, right? My other grandmother, who, the one who grew up in, in Guerrero uh, and who came from a more impoverished background, uh, she was the only one out of all her family that ever finished any type of education uh, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, just being able to finish elementary and then eventually get a certificate to teach mm-hmm. and then eventually become a principal for Mexican women mm-hmm. within Guerrero, which for context is a very, uh, as it is, we have a lot of machismo in Mexico, but Guerrero is particularly known for it. Mm-hmm. For her to be able to, one, being the one girl in her family to get out of the house, pursue an education, and then become a principal uh, on a school, that's uh, that's a lot. Right. Um, so, so yeah, they, they had these pretty strong characters. That's about amazing. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Does Katona mean anything? Not to no. my knowledge, okay. other than, than my grandma. But the funny thing, though, so... We didn't call her Katona, like growing up as kids, or we didn't even call her Abuelita or Grandmother. Oh. We called her Tony. She wanted us to call her Tony. Oh, really? Yeah. So, like, when I, when I hear Tony, like, I think that's my grandma, <laughs> Tony. Yeah. Nice. And then, how did your parents meet? Oh, my parents. So, funny story. That's something that I could have not been able to answer. If you had asked me two years ago, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know. Yeah. So... So my dad left when I was about six years old, and he didn't come back into the picture until maybe three or four years later after that. And then we saw him on and off, then moved to the US and didn't see him for a long time, like almost eight years. So uh, needless to say, like I've spent a lot of the last seven years trying to rebuild a relationship with him. And that's one of the stories that he told me not that long ago. So uh, my grandfather, uh, so my mom's dad, um, he was very uh, politically active in Mexico. Uh, they lived in Mexico City, and they lived around, uh, this was in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, there was a lot of social unrest going on, and uh, my grandfather, who was an architect and writer, was always very socially conscious and began to get involved with a lot of different student uh, led movements that were trying to advocate for more uh, autonomy in Mexico City. So with UNAM, which is like our big flagship university, uh, not only Mexico City, but in the country, our big public flagship university, I should say. Mm-hmm. So my grandfather was very involved with that movement. And my father 
uh, was an activist and student leader in Guerrero that also began to uh, get very involved with other student movements from across the country. So uh, my father actually, through a mutual acquaintance, met my grandfather, and then my grandfather had him over at my house. Uh, well, not my house. I say my house because that's the house I grew up in. It's my grandma's and grandpa's house. Mm. And that's when, that's when they met. Wow. Uh, so my mom and dad, both of them in different ways, were very involved in, in student movements and social movements, and mm. their love sort of grew out of, out of that mutual involvement. Nice. Oh, wow. Do you have siblings? I do. I have two younger sisters that are my full-blood sisters, if you will. Mm. And then I have two older sisters that are half-sisters. Mm. And then I have three stepsisters okay. that are also um, from another marriage from that mm. my dad has. But they're also older than me. Yeah. So your parents, when they were, they were into student activism, it sounds like, did that... Did they ever talk about it when you were growing up? So my, not my dad, because I wasn't around mm -hmm. him. And whenever I was around him, it, it's funny because, you know, we will go and spend time with him in Acapulco, which is like this, is the closest beach town to Mexico City. And that's where, where he lived and where my grandmother lived. And honestly, we would see him, we, we were there like two weeks, we would see them maybe three days out of two weeks, and we were really there to see my grandmother. Mm. And the times that we were with my dad, it was more sort of like, take us out to the beach or take us out to a restaurant, and then that's it. So so he kept busy, so I didn't really hear much from my dad growing up. My mom, um, I don't think she will tell us as much about her involvement in, uh, in activism as much as she would show us the values that drove her to be passionate for social justice. So I'll give you a couple examples. Whenever we moved to a new neighborhood, my mother, one of the first things that she would do is go around the neighborhood introducing herself to everyone. And as she was doing this, uh, I, in, you know, in the back of my head, I'm thinking my mom's just being friendly. But you know, over the years, what I learned is my mom is really just getting to know people and their needs and their strengths. And she just has this keen ability to, to look for those too in everyone she meets. And whenever she can meet somebody's need, she'll go out of her way to do that. Mm -hmm. And if she can remind someone about their strengths, she'll go out of her way to do that. And I feel like those are the values that drove her to be so passionate about social justice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whenever we had some extra food, even though we didn't have a lot, uh, we will give it away to a family in the neighborhood. If we had some extra money around Christmas time, we will buy toys for uh, the families that didn't have any, um, any means to buy toys for, for their kids on that during the holidays. And, you know, growing up, I always sort of assumed that's what everyone else did. Mm -hmm. and, and I know a lot of other people do it, but now that I'm you know, older and I talk with my mom and I reflect on it, I realized that, you know, it was not by accident. It was very intentional. Mm -hmm. And growing up around that shaped me because mm -hmm. I feel like as a storyteller, so much of what I do is try to understand uh, needs and strengths and then close those gaps uh, that exist out there by leveraging needs strengths. What do you remember learning about your culture in those early days? So my grandmother, Katona, right? Catalina Katona, Tony, my abuelita, she, she was a painter. 
So my upbringing in, in her home in, in Mexico City was largely shaped by the artwork that decorated our walls. And, you know, it's one of those things that, again, I think you take kind of for granted when you're a little kid. But as, you know, as I've grown, I, I've really reflected a lot on how fortunate I was to be able to walk across my grandma's home and be exposed to uh, different Mexican artists like Posada and Frida Kahlo and Rivera, um, and as well as just being exposed to other artwork that we had. But uh, my aunt, so my mom's older sister, uh, she spent some time doing archaeology work too. So we had these beautiful uh, old crafts that they had discovered out of archaeological digs, and we had them decorating our home. We had these beautiful uh, artesanías, we call them. So it's like these like really beautiful arts and crafts that were anywhere from 100 to 200 years old across our home. And my grandpa, who passed away before I was born, he was a writer and, and an architect. And at home, at their, so he designed uh, the, the home, uh, and he pretty much kind of helped to build the home where, where my grandma lived and where we lived and where I grew up. But he had a sort of like what you would call his office, but we call it la biblioteca, the library, because mm-hmm. it was full of books. Mm-hmm. And he was a voracious reader. My grandma used to tell us growing up that uh, my grandpa could uh, read a whole page in less than five seconds, and he would just flip through through books like nothing. and. You know, I think we will we will try. Like me and my sisters will go inside this library, right? It was like I mean, it was a tiny. It was not like a huge library or anything. But I mean, really thinking about it, I mean, how privileged I was to mm. grow up in a household where there was a place that we called the library, quote unquote, right? And right. that you will go in there and you were surrounded by literally hundreds of books, mm. and I could just pick up any of them and most of them because my grandpa was a, a big fan of history. Uh, had tons of things to teach me about my history in Mexico and the history of other peoples and other cultures. So just those images, I mean, I'm I'm seeing them in my head right now, the artwork, uh, the the books, the artesanías, all the craftsmanship that decorated the home. The home itself, the way it was built, uh, it was reminiscent of uh, of an uh, hacienda. Uh, So very influenced by the early sort of architectural style that the Spaniards brought to to Mexico when they colonized. Um, so I feel like all of that uh, created an image in my head mm-hmm. of uh, what my culture was. And then outside from that, I, I have to say, I feel very lucky that I was educated in Mexico, especially in elementary and middle school, because I learned about the history of my country uh, in terms of who were the indigenous groups that that lived across our, our country in terms of um, just really understanding where we came from and how we became such a multicultural society. And I feel like that coming here to this country uh, gave me a very strong sense of self and, and and history and just really understanding my history. When I talk to young people who have been raised here, who have uh, a Mexican heritage uh, or whose families have 
uh, in generations past immigrated from Mexico, I realized pretty quickly that unless they go out of their own way to learn about it or unless their families have spent time with them talking about this, schools are never going to give them that type of history. So that Mm -hmm. was something else that I guess I brought with me when I came here. And that definitely shaped my perception of uh, my culture growing up. Wow. You touched on a few things there. One being that's something that a lot of us take for granted is that privilege to have a library in the home, right? Whether it's big or small, but that access to books and knowledge in, in, in history, that being in a home definitely is, is such a privilege. And I, I remember not thinking about that as a privilege until someone pointed it out to me. And then you start to think what your life would be like without that and that, that understanding and the, that connection to knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's pretty deep. When did you come to the United States, and where where was the first place that uh, your family landed? Yeah, so for some context around that, so my mom, uh, she's a teacher, and uh, as a single mother, uh, she's she struggled quite a bit to to make ends meet. Uh, like I said, my dad came in out of the picture a lot, even though we had this home and we had these uh, these affluence from a cultural perspective the, the home was falling apart because we were we didn't have money to maintain it my grandmother i mean she was pretty much retired and she kept working pretty much to help out my mom and my mom uh, you know she was always the last person to get hired at any school she went to so that meant that when layoffs came around which they were always not far around the corner, she was the first one to go. So, you know, growing up, I I went to 12 different schools between the first grade and the eighth grade. Wow. And it's all because my mom kept on having to move from job to job. And there was a point where uh, I remember even having this conversation with my mom at 13 years old. I already knew that my future in Mexico was going to be very challenging. And my mother, she had a sister that moved to Seattle back in the 80s. And my grandmother had a sister that moved out to Seattle, I believe, in the 40s. So there's a history of migration of my family coming to Seattle. Mm. And if you want to, I'll tell you a funny story about that later. But I want to say all of that to give you just context for Um, why we came here and it sort of boiled down to uh, what many other families that I've met who've made similar decisions in terms of a reason it boils down to opportunity for your kids so my mom wanted opportunities for us and she made a difficult choice to bring us here and we arrived in uh, Los Angeles uh, about three weeks after 9-11 in 2001. Wow. So we were very fortunate that we had been approved for a tourist visa. Mm. Uh, and this was back in, what would it be, like early 2001. And then 9-11 happened, and I remember my mom and I looking at each other thinking, like, 
does that mean we didn't have our visas yet? And we were thinking maybe that means we're not going to get them anymore. Mm-hmm. And not even a week after 9-11, uh, we got our visas. And two weeks later, we were on a plane and mm-hmm. we arrived in Los Angeles. We stayed there for about two days and then we took another plane to Seattle where mm-hmm. my grandma uh, met us, uh, my grandma Katona. And then, yeah, I mean, we came here and, you know, something that I remember so clearly is as the plane was landing on Seattle and I was sitting on the window aisle, so I'm like looking down, like just trying to get a, catch an eye of what's life going to be like in this new place. It's raining, of course. <laughs> so the fall, you came in the fall, yeah. yeah. So it's yep. fall and I'm seeing the trees and I'm seeing the leaves, right? Those mm-hmm. just beautiful uh, reds, yellows, oranges, and all the green that's still so overwhelming even in the fall. Mm. And I'm seeing the mountains and I'm seeing the clouds and I'm seeing the lakes. And then I begin to see these tiny little buildings at the... Uh, horizon and we started getting closer and closer and I turned to my mom looking really worried and my thinking is how are we going to live in this tiny village <laughs> because I'm coming from Mexico City right yeah. so yeah, it's I, I'm, I'm like almost nine million people right and wow. I see Seattle and I'm thinking to myself my life's over maybe we made a mistake this is too small that's funny and it did not even take a day for me to fall in love with the city Nice. Uh, even though it was raining nonstop, even though um, we had very little in yeah. terms of um, assets or resources, language, cultural capital, like it just we we had very little. Right. But I fell in love right away with the city. Oh I mean, the, the smell, the character, uh, the, the people. I mean, just to this day, there's nothing that I love more than fall. Uh, in mm. Seattle, uh, it's just the smell of wet dirt and leaves. Like it's just, I smell it, and yeah. maybe I just associate it with my beginning in this country. That mm. it just provokes these really strong emotions in right. me. But yeah, that's that's how I came here. And, wow. and I will say though that we again, I I, I I don't stop ever thinking about the privilege mm. that we also had because uh, we had a. a family waiting for us here, right? I cannot imagine what it would have been like to just arrive here without my aunt being Mm -hmm. here to Mm -hmm. introduce us to the city and and the culture. And even though I got, I still got lost a handful of times (laughs) taking Metro bus around around town and, um, and I remember the first time I ever got on a Metro bus, I put in a $5 bill uh, to be told later that I could not get change. And I remember, I mean, that hurt, that $5 bill that I lost, like it just hurt. Um, so those things still happen, but but my aunt really helped us to to navigate um, the the first couple, uh, really the first month. So we stayed with her, and then you know later on we had to leave. You know we, you know family's family, but family doesn't keep you forever. Right. Right. So <laughs> so you know we 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 kindly her move on, and and we did. Right. Uh, and then you know it got tough because we we lived in a basement, and you know my mom. Even though she was a teacher back in Mexico here, all she was ever uh, hired for was to clean kitchens, cook at kitchens, clean houses, mm-hmm. and, and she did it, you know. But um, it, it was difficult to see my mom um, have to go through through some of that. But, wow. but she did it with such love and, and such humor and, and passion. Uh, I think that even though it was 
difficult to watch. There was so much purpose in, in her sacrifice that, um, if anything, that, that gave me even more drive to to want to do well uh, in terms of my, my academics and right. um, just staying focused. Right. It's really sad how a lot of people come they like they're in their country they have a degree like they could be a doctor they could be a nurse mm -hmm. then they come here and it's not recognized right and they end up you know having to be like a hotel housekeeper or oh. janitor or something you know something like yeah. that where it's like yeah. that it doesn't match their skill set yeah. it's because their degree isn't recognized here yep and a lot of people have to end up paying a crap ton of money to be re-educated about things that they already know. Mm -hmm. If they um, want to do that. Right, right, right. And sometimes they don't have the money, so they're just like, okay, I guess I'm going to do this so and not true. pursue, you know, continue my nursing. Right. Can I say a little bit more about yes. that? Yes, yeah. Because uh, my mom and I talk a lot about this now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, over the last two years, I've been very intentional about going back and reflecting about our first couple years here, and even the the first couple years, I'll say that differently, reflecting of the time right before we made the decision to come here, mm -hmm. and then the choices that my mom had to make mm -hmm. uh, as she was navigating this process for us. And that just came from my own curiosity of better understanding my story because when I'm sharing my story about my early years as an immigrant in this country, I tell the story that I know, which comes from my perspective and mm -hmm. my experience. Mm -hmm. And I speak a lot about my mom and how her choices influenced me. But then I began to realize I don't think I've ever sat down with my mom and actually asked her, how did that feel? Right. So for the last two years, she and I, uh, from time to time, when we when I drive somewhere uh, for work and I know it's gonna be a three or five hour drive, uh, she'll come with me and we just talk. And I ask her a bunch of questions. How do you feel? Do you have any doubts? And I always think of my mom as this unwavering figure of courage and uh, hard work and sacrifice and that she made every choice with such certainty and then I started talking with her and I realized that she was full of doubt and fear and mm -hmm. that there were so many moments when uh, she struggled so much and what you just said right now it really made me think a lot about how you know and not to say there, there's nothing wrong with cleaning a kitchen there's nothing wrong mm -hmm. with cooking a kitchen there's yeah. nothing wrong uh, with cleaning houses, there are decent jobs, and, um, and and you can find if you can find a living and some dignity in them, then bless you, and that's amazing. But there's something to be said about how my mom used to be a teacher, and then she came here, and all she was ever given in terms of an opportunity was janitorial work, uh, housekeeping work, or work. Uh, as uh, in the food industry and it was always underpaid uh, or under the table and uh, and it really also uh, damaged her health mm -hmm. uh, she had a back problem and then she had to be standing you know up to 14 16 hours a day right. but more than the the toll that it took on her physical health is the emotional uh, and mental damage that that she suffered um, right like her self-esteem, right. um, you know? So I don't know, it's just something that 
now my mom, I think, is healing mm. through, through all of that process. And I think she's beginning to reclaim her identity as an educator. So now she's beginning to do some, some education work again. Oh, nice. But it's taken her uh, 16 years mm. to, ha- to recover that sense of agency right. and be able to say, in this country, I can be a teacher. Maybe not a classroom teacher because that would require right. a significant financial investment that's out of uh, our scope of possibilities right now. But there are other ways in which she can think of herself as a teacher and do that type of teaching work mm. that she's so passionate about. So, right. so it's just been a, a recovering process for her and it's really something that I never thought of until I began to have that conversation with her. Mm. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. What grade did you enter when you got to Seattle? So I was in the ninth grade. What school? I started at the Secondary Bilingual Orientation Center, uh, SBOC, but now it's known as the Seattle World School. Oh. And it's really, really cool story around it because it's a very unique model. Uh, there's yeah. only I think nine schools like it in the country. Mm-hmm. So it's a country. Uh, it's a country. It's a school that was designed. Uh, with newcomer immigrant and refugees in mind. Mm. And it used to be a transitional school, which meant that you would just go to the school to acquire basic English skills uh, while learning you know, other skills. So it's a full-on school. You're still doing math. You're still doing social studies. You're still doing your sciences. But the whole school catered to an ELL population, right? English language learners. So it was just such a beautiful experience to be surrounded uh, in my classroom by students from Somalia and the Philippines and Jordan and Bosnia and Guatemala and, and yes, Mexico, and just having a school that uh, was so good at embracing that diversity and, uh, and giving me really a very strong start in terms of my academics. Mm-hmm. So I spent my first academic year at that school Mm. and that uh, made a big difference in terms of just feeling welcome and having teachers that knew and understood how to work with uh, non-English speakers and that I gained a lot of confidence in that school Mm. in terms of my academics. I I was not a very good student, quote unquote, good um, in Mexico in, in terms of my grades or things like that, but in this school I, I excelled. I, I did very well, and, and I learned English within six months. Uh, I went from no English to pretty good conversational wow. English. So what? they actually wanted to send me to my neighborhood school earlier than other students, but I refused because I had made some friendships. I knew eventually I was going to have to leave the school, but I didn't. I didn't want to leave it quite yet. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I I really, you know grew very close to some of the teachers and instructional assistants in that school and I felt like I, I, I wanted to stay there. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that's where I got started. Wow. And then what neighborhood school? Uh, Roosevelt. Okay. So, I mean, and, and not the, the, there is no big secret around this. Uh, you know, so what happened is my, my aunt that moved here in the 80s, all of her children went through Roosevelt High School. Okay. And the... Their experience uh, as, as immigrants here was slightly different than ours. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's why uh, they just, I think they had some privilege in their lighter skin color and also uh, just in the fact that they had, they had residency. So 
so they they were here, uh, you know, legally. And also they came here at an earlier age, so I think they assimilated a little bit differently than, than with it. They also uh, were able to secure uh, housing in a very affluent neighborhood in Seattle, in Laurelhurst. So when we first moved here, my aunt right away said, your kids have to go to Roosevelt, to my mom, mm-hmm. uh, thinking that that's the best school, mm-hmm. academics are great there, and, and that's just that's how they judge a school, right, based on right, academics, right. Yeah. and also right. based on the experience of her, of her kids. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> it, let, let's just say it was not the same experience for me at Roosevelt, but what I will say, though, is that the academics did compel my mom to make the choice for us to stay there, even though we did not live in the zip code that would have given us Roosevelt as an option. We used my own zip code to, to be able to go there. In the context of culture, sure. can you speak about that experience of what it was like to go to Roosevelt High School? Uh, Roosevelt, I think, is quintessentially represents white culture mm. in, in Seattle, from my perspective. Um, I mean, you know, this is some. This is not something that, uh, at least, I, I, I'll speak about my experience. Uh, I was not ready to understand how challenging white culture was going to be on my sense of self, and uh, you know, I arrived to that school, and it was the exact opposite from what I had seen. At, the Seattle World School. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a bunch of white kids, right. and you know what I saw uh, as I looked down at my shoes were some pretty old, dirty shoes. And I looked around, and not to say that everyone, you know, I don't want to make blanket judgments of everyone there, but it was overwhelming uh, for me just to notice and and think, you know, I think most people here are pretty well off, mm-hmm. and and I'm not. I there's not a single teacher of color that I can remember. Mm. There's uh, more often than not uh, no kids of color at all in any of my classes. Mm. And I realized very quickly, I'm, if, I mean, I don't know if these are the exact figures, but how I remember it, I'm maybe one out of 15 Latino kids in the whole school, and two of them were my sisters. Mm. And out of a they had like what 12 1200 yeah yeah so right. so large large school 4a yeah for sure at uh, the time at the time i don't know if it's 4a now yeah so so yeah i mean you know that that was challenging and then you know uh, something that i didn't share until very recently mm-hmm. uh, because i do quite a bit of work now within uh, education around inclusion and equity and i was facilitating uh, a workshop with a group of curriculum developers for an entire school district. And I began to talk a lot about the importance of ethnic studies and the importance of counter narratives and representing uh, stories uh, that traditionally have been left out on purpose uh, from curriculum, from schools, uh, the importance of having teachers of color. You know, I'm going on, you know, pretty much this long, presentation around just the importance of telling traditionally untold stories mm-hmm. in schools. Mm-hmm. And I begin, as I'm say, saying some of these examples, talking a little bit about my experience at Russell to paint a picture about what this can look like. And I ended up talking quite a bit about 
uh, my early, I will say, first couple months at Roosevelt, I saw very quickly how kids that were kids of color were treated by other people. And specifically, I judged myself by looking at other Mexican kids more than anything. Mm -hmm. So I right away picked up on uh, some of the signals that I saw and told myself I need to be as far away as I can from the quote-unquote stereotypical Mexican. Mm. Like, I don't want to be judged like that. So I begged to be taken out of yellow classes. And, and I begged and I begged, and they did. They took me out of yellow classes. So even though I was in the 10th grade, they said, well, if you don't want to take um, yellow classes, then we have to put you in ninth grade, but you're a 10th grader. And I was like, that's fine. I just don't want to be with the yellow kids. Mm. Because I see how, I mean, I didn't say this, but this is how I'm thinking about it. I'm seeing how other people are talking to them, and I'm seeing how the other kids at the school look at them. I don't want to be in that classroom. Mm. I remember going into my ninth grade language arts classroom and I remember there was this other kid who was Mexican in that classroom and I on purpose sat as far away as I could from him. Mm. I, as soon as I could make some money, I would go and buy Abercrombie & Fitch clothes mm. because that's what I saw that other mm. people were wearing and I wanted to be as much as I could uh, like everybody else in that school. Right. I was pretty much putting on a costume, mm. right? And, you know, for uh, the next three years of my life, uh, even though I had a, a very strong sense of pride in my culture at home, mm. at school, I did not want to be known as a Mexican kid mm. because I heard the way teachers talked about it. I saw the way uh, counselors and security officers interacted with my uh, Mexican peers, and I was also surrounded by this larger rhetoric uh, across our city, region, the country, about who we are as Mexicans in this country, and I did not want to deal with that. Mm. Wow. So, if you will, I sanitized myself, mm. um, and, you know, it was very difficult eventually to deal with that, but uh, that's what I mean with, you know, Roosevelt, yeah. uh, socially, culturally, it was a nightmare for me. Academically, I did great. I mean, I, I graduated with a 3.9 GPA, wow. but I had very low self-esteem by the time mm. I made it out. That's, wow. And I mean, even even thinking about the segregation of Seattle public schools, well, just the segregation of Seattle, period, mm -hmm. um, with a lot of wealth in the North End and just the way that lines were drawn as far as who could buy housing where you still see the remnants of that i think there was an article that came out maybe three years back that said seattle public schools are more segregated now than they were in the 50s and 60s which is crazy but i think about hearing stories about students who grew up in the south end being bused to the north end to try to desegregate schools and the trauma that these students had to go through going to this school and being seen as, oh, you're from the South End, huh? Like, you must not be here. And so I can only imagine what it was like for you to be at this school. Wow, that's, that's, that's deep. That's was, deep. Was transferring not an option? Is that something you didn't consider, going to another school? Not once, because at the time I was convinced that's what I needed to be. Mm -hmm. So my thinking, the way I... I conceptualize a school is I'm here to get a good grade, to keep up a good GPA, 
so I can go to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm feeling crappy about it, if I'm feeling crappy about my culture, if someone, uh, quote, one of my teachers once told me, you're such a smart Mexican kid. I wish more of the Mexican kids were like you. Wow. And I remember feeling good about that. Mm-hmm. Because in my head, I was there to be the, the good Mexican kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was there to be the kid that was going to graduate and go to college. And if the other kids, uh, you know, that, that were like me, that looked like me, that spoke like me, didn't succeed, then, you know, too bad. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't want to be associated with them. So, you know, I, I, I really never thought of it because... You know, and honestly, I think this also just comes from culturally how we think about education in Mexico. It's about grades, mm. right? It's mm-hmm. about just get your grades, you go to school, and teachers rule, right? Mm-hmm. And principals rule, and parents don't get involved, right? And parents just tell you, hey, listen to the teacher, listen to the yeah. principal, right. and, and that's what you do. Yeah. So for me, uh, I never thought that there was any degree of choice. Uh, on the matter. I felt like this is what I have and I need to be um, very thankful. And I was because then again, I mean, Roosevelt High School for me, you know, compared to the public schools that I went to in Mexico, it felt like, a, you know, state-of-the-art institution. I mean, it was just uh, so amazing to see, you know, all I mean, I say technology, I mean, it's like really all computers now by, by today's standards. But I mean, I remember like looking at the classroom and like, like every teacher has a computer. What? Mm-hmm. So like in Mexico, like our, like the, the desks that the teachers had were made out of concrete mm-hmm. and they were stuck to the ground yeah. and there was nothing allowed on the walls. Wow. Uh, right. I mean, it's just, it was so different. So I, I, I felt like, you know, I'm living in a movie. Right. Right? Yeah. This, I'm, I'm like in the movies, uh, I'm like in the schools that I've seen in movies growing up in Mexico. And so what that I feel crappy every day when I come here? I'm in a movie, right? Right, right. Well, then I, I think also, I think about my parents and just as I reflect and try to think about it and look at it from a place of understanding, as a freshman, my parents moved me to a different side of Kent to a more affluent school and to them it was this school has more money uh this school has more resources it's a better school never taking into consideration uh culturally how i would be affected because to them like you like you were saying just get your grades listen to the teacher we want to provide the best opportunity for you to succeed not thinking about what it would mean to the impact on your self-esteem and the impact on on what that would do to you mentally as far as culture is concerned. And so, I don't know, I I still try to look at it from a place of understanding, but I I too personally understand like what the the damage of going to a school where you're trying to be the uh, different person of your race um, and looking at how how teachers treat folks who look like you and what the, the damage that can be done there that's super super interesting and something that I definitely will probably take away and have to chew on a little bit a little bit I mean the way the simplest way I can explain it is that my school was a white institution right mm-hmm. that was teaching me and preparing me to exist in a white society yeah right so from that perspective 
even as a young person, I remember rationalizing that. Right. Wow. And mm-hmm. thinking to myself, this is the dominant culture here. Uh, my culture is uh, not very well regarded. Right. And especially thinking about my immigration status gave me even more reason to want to uh, hide as much mm-hmm. uh, within the dominant culture that I made the, the choice. And it wasn't a difficult one to make, honestly. Mm. Um, okay. I'm going to try to be as white as I can be. Right. Um, so right. interesting. Yeah. Because I had, well, the reason why I asked about transferring um, was because I had similar experience, but I basically gave up and was like, fuck it, I'm transferring. Mm-hmm. So I went to Garfield for high school, came from the South Seattle Middle School. And so I went there and my classes, so I don't know if you're familiar with Garfield, but it's mm-hmm currently still very segregated. And so the classes that I was in, the student body did not reflect what I was used to. And so I was like, okay, I'll tough it out. I'll just see how this goes, all right? And I hated it, hated it. Ended up transferring to a high school in South Seattle that no one would actually transfer into. Basically, people want to transfer out of the school. This is the school that, hey, you're new to the school district. There's no space in other high schools. You'll go here. There are like two other options. You go here, this other school. And so that's the high school I decided to go to. And so hearing you talk about, you were just, you were like, no, I'm gonna stay. I'm gonna persevere, go through it, you know. I thought, wow, that's very encouraging where I was like, "Uh, yeah, forget it. What happens senior year of high school as students are like getting ready to figure out what their next steps are for you did you did you know where you wanted to go did you know what you wanted to do i knew i wanted to go to college (laughs) and i very distinctly remember feeling very lost anxious scared so again for context we came to this country so we could go to college Uh, i mean the world we, we say the word opportunity Right, but for us, that's higher education. That's what it boils down to. And uh, there was never any question in my mind uh, or uh, in the way my mom talked to me and my younger sisters about our futures uh, that we would go to college. How to get to college? Very different uh, question because even though my mom was college educated in Mexico, again, I, I fully own that that privilege that that, that we had and, and I acknowledge it just in terms of thinking uh, that I do have college educated parents in Mexico uh, but here my mom was working from seven in the morning until eight or nine at night you know again cleaning kitchens uh, cleaning houses so uh, my mom had no time to sit down with me and plan for college mm-hmm. and even if she could she did not understand uh, the culture she did not understand the system so I have to figure out on my own pretty much and in the back of my head, you know, I'm thinking about every time that I've heard someone at my school talk to me about college to figure out what's my next move. So, you know, after doing some, uh, some thinking about it, some planning, some research on my own, I figured that I eventually have to talk to my counselor about college. So I make the appointment. I, I go, I speak with my uh, counselor about wanting to uh, plan for for my next steps and uh, and you know I, I'm thinking my counselor goes on autopilot mode right I mean 
you know, Roosevelt, 1,200 students, right? Uh, not that many counselors. You're mm-hmm. handed a handful of them. So you start checking off boxes, right? Yep. SATs, uh, you know, FAFSAs, at least 10 institutions. Have you started on personal statements, letters of recommendation, other options around financial aid, scholarships? And I'm hearing all of these, and I'm overwhelmed because I'm a senior in high school, and I do have a 3.9 GPA, but I don't know what the SAT is. Mm. And no one's ever talked to me about FAFSA. And more than anything, when I did research and began to look at college applications, one of the first things that you have to fill out is this form where you put down your name, your address, and your social security number. Mm -hmm. And I had a big question about that. So I I tell my counselor, hold on, um, I I actually have a different question for you. I really just want to know if I can even go to college, like if I'm allowed to. And I remember she looked at me and said, what do you mean allowed to go to college? I was like, well, I don't have papers. And she says, well, what do you mean you don't have papers? Like, what kind of papers are you missing? Like transcripts, like we can print your transcripts. And then I realized I have to be pretty, uh, pretty blunt about this. I'm like, I'm illegal. And, you know, I, I, I do want to sort of hit pause on that because uh, in the story, just the word that I just use, like, it's just one that, and I don't say this lightly, I hate it. I hate that word. But I use it because really uh, two reasons. One is a word that I use that day when I spoke with my counselor. And it's not only that I use the word, is how I saw myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's important for that, for that to be part of my story. Uh, and the second one, just for a reminder for myself that there is no such thing as an illegal human being, but that we, in fact, make people feel illegal all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a combination of those two things, that I walked into that, into that office feeling illegal, and that I saw myself as an illegal, that when my counselor looked at me and told me, Luis, people like you don't go to college, I believed her. Mm. And I have never felt more dirty and ashamed and um, even criminal than that day. Mm. And uh, when she said, are we, are we done here? And I said, um, I, I don't know. She says, like, well, you need to get out now. Uh, I, I'm busy. So I just stood up and I walked out. I didn't only walk out of her office. I walked out of the school. I never missed a single day of school, not even when I was sick. I went to school every single day. But that day... That's the one day I missed, because mm. I just left, and, and I walked, and I walked, and I kept on walking and walking, and eventually I got home, and my mom was way too busy, um, you know, coming home, she's eating dinner, she's prepping for the next day, my sisters are doing their homeworks, they're busy, and my grandma, who, who was there with us at the time, she's busy too, but... Out of all of them, she's the one that noticed that something was very wrong with me that day. Mm. And she just simply um, came up to me, and there was no 
no hug, no no series of questions uh, trying to inquire into how I was doing. She just simply looked me straight in the eye and said, now you remember that you become the story you tell about yourself. Mm. So what story are you going to tell? And then she told me, like, off you go. And those words um, stuck with me. And they stuck with me uh, every day for the next three months. And after fighting this battle, um, I think a battle deep inside of me, um, I finally ended up landing on, okay, I I am going to apply to college. Even if they say no, I'm going to do it. So, you know, I started doing my own research. I started started reaching out to other people in the community. And I ended up finding out that, yeah, it turns out people like me, undocumented people, can go to college. And it's not going to be easy, but it's doable. So by the time I realized all of these, I have three days to apply to the University of Washington. So I take the SAT. I write my personal statements. I get my transcripts, and I hand-deliver my application on the very last day, and I got accepted. Wow. So at that point, I thought that I had overcome uh, by far the biggest challenge. And then, of course, my journey at UW began, <laughs> and I realized <laughs> this, is, this was nothing. This was right. just like training wheels, <laughs> uh, because at UW, you know, more than a couple of times, I had people that questioned me. And I'll be, uh, let me reframe that. Like I had people that questioned someone like me being there directly. And I think just indirectly through policies and through the culture of the institution. Right. When you say people, do you mean other students or faculty? Uh, I, or so, <laughs> so students, uh, I don't think faculty, uh, I, I, at least that I can th- remember, I don't think I uh, ever encounter someone in faculty. Uh, I feel like I always sought out the faculty that would strengthen my sense mm. of identity because this is pretty much a UW when I got I, I went through that process right. of reclaiming my culture and my sense of pride and I mm. sought out the faculty that I felt could help me with that. So some of the best faculty that I knew at UW are actually people that I never took a class from, are people that I just said, what are the people of color? And I went and I found them mm. and I pretty much gave them the option. I told them, you're going to be my mentor. And, and that helped me out a lot. Most of them taught at the postgraduate level. So I would have, as an undergrad, I would have never mm. been able to take a right. class from them. Okay. But no, I, I you know, a, an example. So I wanted to become a doctor. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you dope. Everybody wants to become a doctor. Right. right? <laughs> it's a, I'm undocumented. And I'm, I'm going there. And I actually got this scholarship through a program called MESA, Mathematic Engineering Science Achievement. And and they were pretty excited about me being at, at UW, MESA was, and they connected me with the College of Engineering. And they just connected me with a bunch of people that were super interested in getting more people of color into the STEM field at large. And then they were just so excited that I wanted to be a doctor. And I remember I'm talking with this advisor uh, that would specialize on helping undergrad students on, on that particular pathway. And then I tell him about my undocumented status, and I swear it was like, if I remember correctly, he told me, do you have a million dollars in the bank? And I said, no. It's like, then you're not becoming a doctor because you're not going to get financial aid mm-hmm. if you're undocumented. And I remember he used to be so excited about me and the prospect of me 
going to medical school yeah. and from one day to the next he lost interest wow. uh, or at least that's how it felt to me you know and um, you know definitely plenty of incidents with other students but you know in another occasion I remember being uh, you know pretty desperate about just financial aid you know I mean I, I, I didn't have any I, I had to pay I paid for tuition with private scholarships and by working construction on the weekends and during the summertime. And I will take a quarter off every now and then. And that's how I, I paid my way through UW that way. Wow. But I remember in one occasion, I'm borderline about to become homeless. And I'm desperate about figuring out what's next for me and whether or not I can stay at UW. At this point, my family went back to Mexico, so I'm by myself. And I went to this talk that a professor, a visiting professor from UCLA, uh, who was being considered to become a faculty member at the School of Social Work, Roberto Gonzalez, uh, he went there to give a talk about his research work. And his, uh, all of his research focuses on the experiences of young undocumented people like me. It's the first time I ever saw someone in the academia world being interested in talking about us uh, in a way from, from a strength-based perspective especially, right? Mm. Most of the research that I saw out there were claims that we were somehow depleting the uh, economic and cultural right. capital uh, of this country, deficit. right? Yeah. This guy is talking about resilience and he's talking about agency and he's talking about empowerment. He's giving me language to understand my own experience. Mm. And I was so empowered after this talk that I walked straight into the financial aid office and I said, you accepted me in this institution. Um, you said that I was good enough to be a Husky, help me stay here. And the financial aid advisor looks at me and says, honestly, I think you need to take some time off. I don't think college is the right option for you right now. Wow. So, you know, that's, that's just a, a couple of examples uh, yeah. that, I, that I can give you around that. But yeah, it was, it was a fight. And I, I, and I don't want to say there were other, uh, there were no other amazing people along this journey. There were. Uh, so many incredible uh, mentors uh, and students and other staff at the institution uh, that if it wasn't because of their support and their guidance, I don't think I would have made it. Mm. But, uh, but that's not to excuse uh, the fact that there were plenty of other people. And I think the institution at large, uh, you know, it was never designed for someone like me. Right. So, right. so that was an ongoing fight. So they didn't have, what is it, WAP? WASFA? WASFA? Yeah, so, so 2003, that's when we got our first tuition equity law, which allowed for in-state tuition. Mm. Uh, so that was just very timely for me because I graduated in 2005, mm. and if it wasn't because of that law that passed in 2003, I would have not been able to go to UW because that law pretty much allowed me to pay in-state tuition instead of out-of-state or international rates. Something crazy to think about is that to this day, from time to time, I'll hear from another undocumented student, even though they qualify for in-state tuition, institutions try to charge them out of state or international rates. Yeah, uh, depending on the institution and the yeah, state. Yeah, depending on the institution. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, WASFA did not happen until 2014. Oh, And okay. I actually, while I was a sophomore, junior, senior, fifth year senior, yeah. and then after I left UW, I, 
I was very involved with uh, some of the advocacy efforts to get that wow. done. So, so I went down to Olympia on a handful of times to testify about being undocumented. And that's actually in one occasion, uh, the news picked up the story that I had gone to testify in Olympia about my undocumented status. And uh, against advice, I gave my name and I gave my institution. And then because of that, I got some emails sent to me of, people pretty much saying, like, we're going to come and find you and stuff like that. But, you know, at that time, uh, it's very different from who I was in Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm undocumented. I'm unafraid. I'm unapologetic. I'm brown. I'm proud. uh, And I'm ready to fight a good fight. And I think I knew from the very beginning that it was never going to get done on time to benefit me. But as someone that began to get very involved in uh, social justice issues around education, and who had traveled quite a bit across the state, meeting young people, I did know the students that would one day benefit from from WASFA. And mm. uh, that kept me, um, you know, that really kept me kept me going in many ways. Where did that perseverance come from? And where did the, that strength come from? So I, I do want to talk about perseverance, but with a caveat, which is that as I'm going through all of these, I am suffering of depression. I, I am definitely, even though I, I never had the opportunity to meet with a mental health professional, I'm pretty sure I, I was dealing with some very severe depression throughout this entire process. And I think I want to say that because I don't want to paint perseverance as um, this, this drive or, or this emotion where uh, you just glide through some of these challenges without being affected. Um, but having said that, I think there's three sources that I would say uh, really gave me a lot of strength and drive uh, throughout this time in my life. I think the first one, which I already uh, name in some ways, are the women in my life. Um, my grandmothers, uh, my mother, and my two younger sisters. Their amount of resilience dwarfs any type of uh, achievement or obstacle that I've had to overcome in my life. It really does. And I think uh, their examples and and their values really did shape me. So so I feel very fortunate that I that I had them around my life. That they are the people that surrounded me. And they are the people that love me and challenge me. So I think one, them. Uh, two, I think a very uh, unwavering belief that my education, and, and I'll expand on my definition around education, but that my education uh, was just mine uh, and mine alone, and that no one could take it once I achieved it. And, and I say expand on the definition because I'm not talking about a diploma. I'm talking about uh, developing a stronger sense of self, of knowledge, of understanding with community, uh, developing a stronger sense of, uh, of agency. I'm talking about just the education that you gain by being in this world, right? I'm not just talking about like the lecture hall or some standardized test that you take. Uh, at this point, when I'm at the University of Washington, I learned pretty quickly that the best things I was going to learn in that institution were going to be outside lecture halls. 
uh, it was going to be by leveraging the institution to try to do as much good as I could uh, out into uh, the community. So I thought of the University of Washington not as a place where I was there to get a diploma. I was there to gain some knowledge, gain some resources, and then do the best I could to give them back to others. And I think, uh, to be honest, that comes from also my mom and my grandmothers. I mean, they were all educators, right? I was raised by educators. So is there any wonder that as soon as I began to gain knowledge that I felt was precious, I wanted to give it out to others? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> and then third, once I started getting out to schools and getting out to speak with students, and by seeing students, I begin to see myself and reflecting on my own experience in high school, I realize very quickly that there's nothing, and, and I really mean this so sincerely, there's nothing quite like having the opportunity to sit down with a young person and have an honest conversation about their future, their challenges that they may face along the way, but their possibilities and what they can do uh, to make a difference by pursuing uh, their education and, and gaining some some knowledge and skills along the way. And I just fell in love with that experience. So I think every time that I went back to UW, I couldn't wait to get back to a classroom and talk to a group of kids about what it was like to be a Brown student at UW, an undocumented Brown student at UW with an accent, right? And and I just fell in love with that process and, you know, that that in many ways just kept me going because whenever I was dealing with something tough, I would just think about my family, you know, my grandmothers, my sisters, my mom. I would think about how much in love I was with learning. And then I was thinking about how much I could do uh, with, with that learning and how much more I could learn from working with young people. Because if there's one thing that I've learned for sure is that young people teach me as much as I teach them. So uh, that kept me going, honestly. Uh, wow. When I was homeless, when I was struggling, when I was about uh, to, to drop out, like those things are the ones that sort of held me together. Wow. 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 And then... What it, when did you start it, and what is Storytellers for Change? Yeah, so Storytellers for Change. Um, so there's, there's a short version and there's a long version. Uh, I believe Storytellers for Change started in 2005. And that's the first time I ever got to speak to a small group of students and deliver an awful speech. Uh, because I'm not a gifted public speaker. I'm a public speaker that uh, has had to practice a lot, 12 years to be exact, to be where I'm at today in terms of my public speaking. But uh, despite delivering this awful speech to a group of kids, one of them uh, heard something somewhere in my messy sentences and a very terrible presentation, heard something that touched them in some way. And then he made the choice to tell me that it meant something to him, and, and that had an impact on me more than I realized at the time. But the fact that he came up to me at the end of my presentation and said, hey, that story just, it, like, it really just changed my life. And, you know, I didn't think much of it at the time, but after that presentation, more invitations followed. And I mean, and this is, you know, just me going at, to classrooms uh, to speak to, to like five, 10, 20 students 
and then it was going to speak to like a group of parents and then like hey there's this community conference going on and then I began to do some research work and had the opportunity to travel a little bit more across the state and go to other schools and then I'm speaking about that research so one thing led to the next but it was always just word of mouth people just saying hey there's this kid that's going to be pretty real with your kids about his experience at UW and 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 he'll show up to speak to to kids and speak to families so I kept being invited and in uh, between 2005 and 2010, which is the time that I was at UW, I ended up landing at over 300 places across the state. And I will just show up because I wanted to and because it kept me going, honestly. And, you know, and I'm getting like maybe if I'm lucky, like a $25 Starbucks gift card um, and maybe like some money for gas, but that's it. Then... I'm out of college <laughs> and 300 presentations into it and doing some, uh, you know, activism work and uh, wanting to do more work around uh, just addressing systematic issues uh, in terms of uh, fixing uh, opportunity gaps and, and challenging uh, mainstream narratives about how education should work. Uh, I decided that I want to start a consulting business. Everybody tells me it's an awful idea, but in reality, I'm undocumented, so I had no other option. DACA was not around at the time, so it's 2010. Uh, I realized, well, I can own a business, so I started. And at first, it was called Power to Define. It was not called Storytellers for Change. And I had this whole thing about, like, my whole speech was, you have the power to define your fill-in-the-blank, your education, your life, uh, your dreams, right? And that was sort of the message that I wanted to give to students. And then within the context of education is we have the power uh, to define the education that we want, right? The education system that we want, the curriculum that we want. Uh, and that's sort of the work that I wanted to do with schools. So I struggle a lot. Uh, because I don't have a business administration background or an entrepreneurial background, right? My parents are teachers, and I'm a teacher. That's how I think of myself, and I, and I give speeches. But now I have to start a business, and mostly out of need. Uh, and I'm pretty, you know, to be honest, I'm pretty upset because I want to be a teacher, right? But I can't. I'm undocumented. I can't be a teacher. Um, so, so I'm trying to the best I can to stay connected with education and school, and I land uh, my first really exciting contract with Seattle Public Schools to work, work at the Seattle World School. And I'm thinking like full circle, like, right? I mean, this school taught me English, and now I'm being hired to come here and create a student leadership program. And now Seattle World School is tra being transformed into a full high school. So I get to be part of a team of people that are going to build a whole high school program. And I get to do all the student leadership piece. So I was super excited about it. And first year uh, was challenging, but was amazing. And of course, I came in there thinking, I have so much to teach these kids. And of course, the kids had a lot to teach me. <laughs> yeah. And then second year starts and I get word from uh, some community advocates that have always been pretty passionate about Seattle World School that the school board's considering to move the Seattle World School to the south end. At first, uh, to some in the outside, they're like, oh, well, that makes sense. That's, that's where the immigrant refugee communities are at. Those of us that understand the Seattle World School model and, and how the school operates and works, uh, we know that about 40% of our students also come from the North End. Uh, and that the reason why it works to have Seattle World School in a centrally located location. So at that time, it was 
uh, near, what is it, like 23rd and John. So we would get students from the North End, we would get students from the South End, and we will even get some students from Kent and Renton from time to time too, and some students from Edmonds. Moving the school to the South End, uh, our opinion was that it would have closed down the school. No doubt. Uh, I mean, we would we would have just lost. Uh, uh, it wouldn't just logistically. We were not able. We would have been able to bring students to, to our school with the yellow buses. Uh, and plus, we're annoyed too because uh, we had been promised a new school building for thirty years. They had been promising us a new school building, and they kept on moving us to the oldest school building in the district, pretty much. And now we're hearing that yet again, they don't want to give us funding for a new school, and they want to move us to this school building in the South End that we know uh, would make us inaccessible to some of our students that live in the North End. Yeah, no, we were not having it. So teachers organized, students organized, parents organized. Uh, my mom at this point, she, she's back in Seattle. She went to Mexico for some time, she's back, and my mom played a big role in organizing parents. And I'm working with my student leadership kids. Uh, I have a kid from Mexico, a kid from China, a kid from the Philippines, a kid from Sierra Leone, and a kid from Jordan. Wow. And we're sitting down talking about why this school means something to them, because the school board, after getting some backlash from the community, decides to give 10 minutes to this group of kids to share stories about why Seattle World School should stay where it is and should be given a new school building. 10 minutes. So each one of them gets two minutes. And I sat down with them, and we work and work and work to write down their stories, pretty much. And you know, and they are ELL kids. Some of them have been speaking English for less than two years, but now they have to stand up in front of a school board and justify themselves and their school. Uh, I mean, just think about that. <laughs> and we go, we do it, we pack the school board meeting, and each one of them starts going up there to deliver their speech and school board members start crying. I mean, they're pretty much being put to shame. And as I start seeing each one of my kids sharing their stories, uh, I remember just so clearly like I'm sitting down next to a friend and that also worked at the school. And I just tell him, it's like, uh, these kids, man, they're storytellers for change. And then I'm like, oh, I like that. Storytellers for change. That has a good <laughs> ring to it. And I mean, it just, I said it and I knew it right away that that's- That light bulb. That's what I need, that's what I need to do. Yeah. So that day I, I went home, I bought the domain. <laughs> nice. And I rewrote my whole vision and mission statement wow. around this idea that, sure, my story, you know, and me sharing my story with, with people, especially young people, is always gonna be part of what I wanna do. But what I'm truly passionate about is seeing people, especially people of color, especially marginalized people, especially people uh, who time and again have been told, not you, right? Get out, this is not for you. Uh, and get us to become storytellers and tell a different story about what's possible uh, and tell a counter narrative that challenges uh, mainstream, narratives, mainstream narratives that demean people. And you know, that's uh, that happening uh, about four years ago, and since then, every year, Storytellers for Change has just really grown. With I mean, that was just a catalyst for me because that happened, and it really became about creating space and opportunities for other people to share their stories outside just my own story, right? And I think the moment I did that, right, the moment it became about not just 
my story and not just my vision, but this larger purpose and, and, and mission to uh, really give tools and opportunities and create spaces and build spaces for others to share their stories that things just started like, it just was magic. It just, just started yeah. happening. Then DACA came around and I was like, forget about DACA. I'm, I, I'm not, uh, now I'm doing storytellers for change, right? This is, this is what this society pushed me towards. Well, now I'm going to own it and I'm going to build something completely different out of it. And there's, um, there's no pathway to do this, but I'm going to create it. And I'm okay with that. These last four years have been a blessing in terms of just the response that I've had from community and from teachers and from friends. And now that we're beginning to do work in public health and beginning to do work on civic engagement and beginning to do work around environmental justice, it all connects back to our roots, which is stories have the power to change our perception of things. Yes. And if a story change our perception of things, and that's everything right there. Right. You're doing so much. Like, I don't even know how to ask you what it is that Storytellers for Change does. But I guess how can how can people get connected and find out about the amazing things that, that you're doing with Storytellers for Change? I'm asking myself the same question. <laughs> <laughs> because I think our mission uh, from the very beginning was, um, you know, stories inspire people. And, and people create change, right? I mean, that, that was just sort of at the core of what we believed in. But that has expanded so quickly into doing work outside just the K through 12 and higher education world that one of the questions that I dislike the most at a networking event is, what do you do? Right. Because yeah. I say, hey, like, oh, I mean, I, I, you know, I oftentimes just tell them, you know, I'm a storyteller and I do some social impact consulting work. But that just feels like such a lame answer uh, because I feel like there's so much more that we do. And uh, I, I think, you know, we are in that process, I think, as storytellers for change to uh, understand how we can better tell our own story. Right. I've been so busy over the last uh, really 12 years, very concerned with uh, just trying to, one, tell a different story about who I am just as an individual within this country. I mean... I share my story and I feel like every time I'm doing that, in some ways, um, I'm not necessarily aiming to do this, but I feel like I'm trying to justify why I deserve to be here as an undocumented person. Um, and, and that's exhausting, right? Because you have to continue to justify why you deserve to be here. And that's a story that I've been fighting to tell since literally since I got here, but intentionally for 12 years. Then I'm working with schools uh, really trying to get them to think about equity and inclusion, not as a checkbox, but as a purpose, as an ongoing commitment, an ongoing practice uh, to completely rethink curriculum, to completely rethink pedagogy, to completely rethink structuring, to completely rethink uh, after-school programs, uh, to completely rethink how uh, we do parent engagement work, right? It's not just sending a pamphlet home, it's really investing in the success of families as well, especially with our immigrant and refugee families, that's so true. Uh, so I'm, I'm busy telling that story. And now that we began to do stuff in public health and civic engagement and environmental justice, right? I feel like everywhere that I go, uh, there's this mainstream narrative that needs to be challenged right. and needs to be challenged right now. Right. And, uh, and we're just a tiny part of so many of the other amazing people that are out there uh, doing this work. So because I believe I come from a community base 
uh, and community center place, I've forgotten to really invest a lot of time in what story should we tell as <laughs> storytellers right. for change? And it's been just more about like we're ready to get something done in the community. But, you know, as an organization, strategically, if we want to grow, uh, we need to be able to do that. So, you know, within the context of what's coming up next for storytellers for change, I'm just really excited about just anyone that's interested in learning more about us, just check us out on our website, so storytellersforchange.org. And uh, it's a, a work in progress, but I, I do feel that we're arriving at that place where we're getting better at, at sharing uh, what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. Uh, so stories are, is at the center, and community and empathy and equity and social justice, uh, I think that's why we do it. Uh, I think how we do it is through story listening, not only storytelling, but first listen, first build some empathy, first get to know people, uh, first uh, reflect on uh, the lenses through which you see the world, right? So a lot of listening first. Uh, then story crafting, right? Reimagine what is the story you want to tell. And then storytelling, right? Engage people with that new story that comes from a place of empathy and creative imagination that it's driven by, again, those values, right? That I spoke of, the equity, the social justice, the inclusion, the empathy. And uh, what we do uh, within that context uh, of both our values and our strategies of story listening, story crafting, and storytelling uh, what we do is motivational storytelling uh, across different contexts, mo mostly in schools, uh, a bunch of training uh, in terms of just helping institutions, organizations, uh, nonprofits just learn how to tell their stories, and then social impact consulting through a storytelling lens. Uh, so get to know the story and then change the narrative, right? So I'll, I'll close by just saying that I, very good example about that is what we did at the University of Washington. Uh, we helped them design uh, Leadership Without Borders, which is the first undocumented student center in a public university in the Pacific Northwest. And we did it by listening to students, uh, reimagining what was the story that we could tell, then telling that story and building that center to make that happen. And that's the type of consulting work that we do. Nice, nice. And then <clears throat> what would you tell a student who's going through some of the similar difficulties and running into the, some of the same barriers that you ran into um, as a high school student and through college? Never stop believing um, in your worthiness. It will be challenged time and again But I believe in so many ways, um, within those challenges, as long as you don't stop loving yourself and loving others, you'll come out on the right end from that battle. Yeah, never stop believing in your story and, and that you are the one that gets to, to write it, to tell it, and to shape it. And that's not to ignore that there are many other things in this world that will fight back against you, but uh, there's really nothing as beautiful as you telling your own story um, and in doing it, uh, helping others along the way. So so I think if you can hold on to that belief, um, it's no silver bullet, but it'll give you a compass.
This is great. Yeah. I'm, I'm inspired. Um, anything that you want to leave folks with? Thank you for doing this. Um, I think as a storyteller, you also get used to telling some stories and not telling others. Um, so I feel like today I got to explore some other stories that I had not thought of in a while. So thank you for that too. That's no, a pretty cool you. gift. Thank you. Yeah, thank I'm, you. I'm, I'm super inspired and, and I know we're working together. And so there's, there's some amazing work coming coming from us yeah, and so yeah, this is going to be really awesome so thank you so much yeah, uh, thank you for sharing your story yes yeah. this is super inspiring and super important so many thoughts turning in my head this is Luis Ortega you're listening to No Blueprint and never forget to believe in the power of your story mm-hmm.